0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: As you've heard from probably every single speaker, um, a, a common theme uh, in what we do, you know, knowledge is power, You gain knowledge by studying. Uh, We believe in clinical trials. Um, And everything that you've heard about uh, has been tested first in clinical trials. Um, I think it's, you know, Mm -hmm. clinical trials is sort of like, talking about clinical trials is like talking about, you know, motherhood and apple pie. Everyone believes in them, but not everyone can do it. It can bake a great pie. So um, next we've asked uh, uh, Rahul Agarwal, my colleague in... in, uh, Medical oncology uh, and one of the leaders in in clinical trial uh, development, both in early phase and in prostate cancer in particular, to speak about uh, demystifying sort of the approaches to clinical trials just to get us all on the same page. So, Rahul, welcome.
0: All right, thanks, Eric, and I'd like to... A special thanks to Adina for putting the program together, and you know, it's really terrific to be here. Uh, And I'm going to walk through sort of the nuts and bolts of clinical trials, not to get into too much of the detail, Um, but before I do, I really wanted to make three points. I think the first was really to echo what Peter said right at the beginning in terms of who knows best what treatment is, is best for you, and that's really you. And so when patients come to me and ask at the end of the day when I presented a clinical trial gone through sort of the risks and benefits, the question I get more than any other is like, well, doc, should I do this trial? And I think that my answer, whether it be a family member, a friend, or a patient I'm meeting the first time, is always the same. You have to trust your instinct and ultimately, you know, what do you feel is best for your care? You know, no one's going to know that better than you. And when I ultimately tell patients, you got to trust your gut. Does this clinical trial really feel like the right fit for you? And clinical trials, as I'll talk about, even within the buckets of phase one, phase two, phase three trials, huge variety in terms of what medicines are being given, what's that balance between risk and benefit, what prior treatments you've had, and so it really ultimately comes back to you and what you feel comfortable with. The second point I'd like to make is that clinical trials is hugely important. You know, If you look at just the average survival outcomes for patients with localized, for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate, for metastatic hormone resistant prostate cancer. The outcomes now as compared to when I started learning about prostate cancer 15 years ago has dramatically improved and that's only because of the clinical trials that patients participate in. And it's not just the patient, it's the caregivers, it's the family, it's the amount of time required to be in clinical trials. So it's an enormous debt of gratitude that we have for patients and families as they do clinical trials and it directly impacts how well we can treat patients. And then the third point, uh, which was really brought up in the last uh, session, really, is about inclusivity in clinical trials. We know that historically, clinical trial populations has not very well reflected the general patient population, so that when we take our clinical trial evidence and we apply these therapies in the real world, we know that the outcomes are both with respect to benefit and side effects is not as good as we see in clinical trials. And why is that? In large part, the inclusion, exclusion criteria for clinical trials is narrow and we try, we work really hard to try to broaden that. So HIV patients with well controlled HIV and ne- negative viral, ro- viral load there's absolutely no reason why such patients shouldn't be included in clinical trials virtually every single agent that we test. And so I work really hard when we have a company sponsored trial to really push back as much as we can and say look you know, this, this group of patients should be allowed to enroll in a study and I think we're trying to find ways to broaden access to clinical trials. Borno, one of our faculty who couldn't be here today, has really made it one of our prime research objectives, try to get out in the community and make clinical trials more accessible for patients. The broader the patient population that we enroll in patient, in clinical trials, the better our data will be and the more patients will be able to positively impact. And so I'll just go through, uh, I, I don't have a lot of slides, so hopefully we'll be able to make up a little time and hopefully save some time for questions as well. Um, And so I'll talk a little bit about the drug development process. Again, the point is not to get too bogged down in the details. And so when I show a slide like this, it's not meant to sort of get through every single detail. But I did want to kind of touch upon, because I get asked a lot in the clinic, well, am I a phase one trial patient, am I a phase two trial patient? It's important to understand that phase one, phase two, and phase three refers to the drug that's being developed, the investigational drug or device that's being tested in testing, and that's the phase in which uh, we talk about clinical trials. You, as a given patient, may enroll on a phase one trial, you may enroll on a phase three trial, then go back to a phase two trial. It's really more the stages are dependent on the drug or device that's being developed. Classically, we think of phase one trials as trying to understand what are the potential safety and side effects, what's the right dose to use of the medicine, how that drug is metabolized in the body, what we call pharmacokinetics. But I'd say increasingly, even in phase one, even in a first in human clinical trial, we're trying to enrich for patients that we think are most likely to respond. So that phase one trials that are just any patient can enroll really are becoming quite rare. Uh, I help lead the phase one program here and I'd say less than 10% of our trials enroll patient with any type of solid tumor malignancy. Increasingly, even in phase one, we're trying to enrich for patients that we think are most likely to respond which is good for the drug and development, but of course, more importantly, good for patients. And and so one of the main messages I have is, is don't be scared off by the label of phase one trial because there really is a lot that can be gained from a patient perspective, even in the context of a phase one trial. The other point I'd make about this diagram a lot happens in parallel. It's not a sequential phase one to two to three. When a phase one trial is ongoing, they're already planning a phase two trial. Sometimes some drugs skip phase two and go straight from phase one to phase three. The accelerated approval program by the FDA, I think, has gotten better over time and there have been more drugs approved quicker and get access to drugs faster. It is a balance. There have been some drugs that get accelerated approval that ultimately don't show as much of a benefit as we thought they did. And so there is that rigor and that need for randomized trials uh, still exists and we do need good randomized clinical trial data ultimately to show whether a medicine is beneficial or not. So in the context of a phase three trial, That's gonna be your proof uh, trial, registrational trial, where really does your drug improve upon standard of care? Phase two is kind of like your intermediate proof of concept step. Does your drug seem to have activity and is it justified to go forward in a phase three trial? So, before we even reach a phase one trial in terms of a medicine that's going into the clinic, there's actually a lot of work that has to happen in the laboratory. And this is mostly in uh, pharmaceutical companies, but I'd say that sort of bigger academic centers are actually able to do some of this preclinical work before a a drug goes into phase one. You have to show that it's plausible, that it has activity when you dose it in preclinical models, that there's evidence that it either causes tumor regression or that it causes a stasis and prevents the cancer from growing. Is it reasonably expected to have benefit? There's a pretty rigorous safety testing program that goes on in, in small animals, large animals, and, and that kind of testing is pretty rigorously evaluated by the FDA before a drug can reach a uh, clinic and, and be tested in patients. And then starting dose is something we really look at a lot in phase one studies. It seems simple, but it's actually quite complex. How do you pick that right dose? Because you're want, wanting to go so high as to cause too many side effects But from a patient perspective, you don't wanna be starting at such a low dose that you're really not gonna expect any benefit. And so how do we find that right balance? And we spend a lot of our time talking with companies about what that dose might be. And so that gets to what I was just saying. Start with a safe dose, but don't spend too much time at a dose that you don't think is gonna be effective. And so when we talk about dose escalation in a phase one trial, One of the key points is efficiency. You don't want to spend too much time, both from a patient perspective, but also a drug development and timelines perspective. Nor do you want to go escalate so fast that you're seeing excess toxicity. I think with immunotherapies, it gets even more complex because you don't have that classic dose- side effect or dose benefit relationship the way we classically think about chemotherapy. And so it gets even more complex, how do we think about dose escalation and what's the right starting dose and ultimately phase two and phase three dose to choose. Um, This this is and actually still remains our probably most common dose escalation design. So for a phase one trial, this is a new medicine. We're trying to understand what dose to use of that medicine. This is a classic three plus three design is what we call. So we would dose three patients, observe what are the initial side effects, usually after three to six weeks of treatment. And if it's safe, we would then escalate further treating three patients per cohort. And this... uh, type of design has some advantages. You're treating more than one patient per dose level. So if, and we know there's a lot of heterogeneity from one patient to another in terms of how you metabolize the medicine, uh, the, the underlying disease comorbidities of that patient, and so it's really important to have a, a group of patients at the dose level. You may reach a dose that's too high. You see what's called dose-limiting toxicity, and then you need to drop the dose back down, uh, and then you ultimately arrive at your phase, phase two dose. And so, from an objective perspective, this is an important part of phase one trials. I think increasingly we're trying to find ways to become more efficient. Uh, this is just an example of an accelerated design where basically you only treat one patient at the lower dose levels. You're trying to really get escalate to a dose that's predicted to be more likely to be effective in a patient quicker. Um, and then once you start to see some side effects, you expand to a larger group of patients. So this is one way that we can build in some increased efficiency into our Clinical trials uh, and arrive at our recommended phase two dose. So, I won't, this slide is not meant to go through the details, but I just want to say that, going back to a point I made earlier, when we talk about phase one, phase two, phase three trials, there's a huge variety within each of these buckets. So, phase one can be anything from a brand new first in human drug to a new combination, taking something that's standard of care and adding a new medicine to it to a new formulation of a drug that's already on the market. For example, going for, to a subcutaneous route from an IV route, that would fall within the rubric of a phase one study. So from a patient perspective, it's really the devil's in the details. And when you talk with your doctor about a clinical trial, if it's under the label of phase one, well, what type of phase one trial? Asking your doctor all the questions and expecting that process to be transparent. How many patients have been dosed with the drug? What are the side effects been shown? What kind of... Response rate, or what kind of effectiveness do we see with this medicine? All those questions should be asked, along with the more practical ones that really are important. How much time is required of me? How much time do I need to spend at the clinic? You know, on a given day, on a given week. Clinical trials can certainly be a pretty heavy time investment. Time is a valuable resource, and so we really want to be mindful. We try our best to minimize uh, the amount of time patients spend, but it is asking a commitment. So those types of questions are important. Biomarker development, I think, you know, Felix and and others have touched on this. I would just say that in prostate cancer, we we often, clinical trials focus on drugs and drug development. But equally important are biomarkers. How can we predict who is likely to respond? And that, I think, we're starting to see some real progress made in prostate cancer. Even 10 years ago in 2010, we really didn't have anything that predicted for a certain subgroup of prostate cancer patients that were more likely to benefit from others. And I think we're really starting to achieve that ARV7 splice variant, the microsatellite test, high subgroup of patients we'll talk about later. Uh, Felix has covered well the DNA repair pathway and we'll talk later about how we think about targeting that pathway. These are just examples of how we can start to subdivide prostate cancer patients and really personalize their care. I'm going to skip this and go to the Kaplan-Meier curves because Eric wanted me to talk about this, and um, so and I and I just pick I didn't pick a I didn't pick a real-world example. I really wanted to stick on the hypothetical and really uh, first just talk about what is a Kaplan-Meier plot. So any clinical trial that has a time-to-event endpoint, whether that be progression-free survival, how long it took for the cancer to grow, or overall survival, you start from the time the patient's enrolled on the study and then you follow them over time, and that's why the follow-up on a clinical trial is so important. And then at each time the event occurs, you see a, a reduction or a percent decline in, in the patients, and so you ultimately can sort of get a sense of, at the end of the day, after you follow patients for two years, three years, how many reach that endpoint of progression or overall survival or what have you. One of the things I want to emphasize, though, is that and I see this a lot even in academic circles, we tend to get really focused on the medians, the average survival improvement with one drug versus another. So Provenge is a great example. The median benefit in survival was three to four months, which seems really modest. But I re- what I really tell even our fellows and folks in training, as, as well as patients in the clinic, is try not to focus on the median. Try to focus on what's called the hazard ratio, what gives you an overall sense of how much benefit there was with that drug, and another way to think about it is look at that 24 month, 36 month endpoint. Were there more patients? With the experimental medicine, who were alive or were disease progression-free at that time point, rather than just focusing on the median. So the example on the left is where you look at those two curves, and at the median, there's really no separation. And you might think that this drug is not active, but if you follow patients further out, you see there's a really large what we call tail- on- the-curve. So at 24 months, a huge improvement in terms of patients alive or progression-free at that time point. And so when you see in New York Times or in other media median survival reported. Probe a little bit deeper. Try to get a sense of the hazard ratio and what the 24-month, 36-month survival rates are. That gives you a better sense. It can go both ways. So on the right, this is an overestimation of benefit where the medians look way far apart, but at the end of the day, at 24 months, there's not much difference between the two arms. So it goes both ways. That's why Kaplan-Meier curves are so important. And so my last slide, I wanted to just talk briefly about a couple of questions that I commonly encounter in patients. Uh, the placebo question. So probably the number one question I get, uh, Doc, I don't want to go on a clinical trial. I don't want to be given a sugar pill or placebo. In reality, less than 5% of clinical trials in oncology have a placebo. And of those trials, most majority are standard of care combined with a placebo versus standard of care plus an experimental agent. It's actually very uncommon that patients are randomized to a treatment arm where there's just placebo and nothing else. And that's because whenever we design a clinical trial we have to do what's ethical, we have to give what's considered standard of care and certainly not any less than that. And so it's really important. But in the sake of transparency I always tell every patient there's no placebo or if there is a placebo this is why we're doing that and why we think it's important for the study. Phase 1 studies only care about side effects. Another common comment I get in the clinic, we do care about side effects. It's important part of that risk benefit, but clearly we learn a lot more from a phase 1 trial. We learn about the initial effectiveness of that medicine, we learn about how the body metabolizes a the medicine. There's a lot that we learn and hopefully we find that patients benefit from the trial as well. Why do a randomized trial when uh, you already know the answer? There was a famous New York Times article back when the BRAF inhibitors were being developed in melanoma where the initial response rates looked really high, yet they went ahead and did a randomized trial, and there was, a, there was two brothers. One was randomized to the standard of care arm, one to the, the, the active arm, and it was a great article because it really gets to the question of uh, what we sort of on the clinical side, the research side, think of equipoise. So when we do a randomized study, we have to feel comfortable whether patients get assigned to one arm or the other. And if the answer is so obvious that this drug is active, that truly is not a type of trial where it should be randomized. But there are actually very few medicines and scenarios where that's the case. There are a lot of examples where we think a drug is really active, but then we do a randomized trial, and it turns out the benefit is not as big as we thought it was, or it's not there at all. And so the randomized trials are really important, but from a clinician and patient perspective, we have to feel comfortable whether we get randomized to one arm or the other. Otherwise, we shouldn't be doing that trial. And so that's all I have. Uh, I'd be happy to take any questions that folks have.
1: Thanks, Rahul. Uh, we have time for just a few questions. We're running a little bit late, but not bad. We'll make, up, we'll make it up with our break time. So, Rahul, um, clinical trial, Just, I just want to clarify this again. Participating in the clinical trial does not necessarily mean you're going to get a placebo. Correct. Right.
0: I mean, the vast, uh, vast majority of the time you would not be getting a placebo. There are a small percentage of trials where there is a placebo, but in that situation, vast majority of those, you're being, it's being combined with another treatment. But it is important to talk with your doctor about it and to ask why. You know, I think the why question is important. The placebo is there for a reason and your doctor should be able to tell you why.
1: Okay. So to, to clarify, typically uh, in a Phase three study, the worst care that you would get is standard of care. So you're not going to be getting anything substandard. And the, the, issue, the issue is when you add something to it, is that better? And if you want to control for a potential placebo effect,
0: you give a placebo. even rephrase. I mean, worst care, well, you're getting the best standard of care. We don't know if the adding of another drug really improves, right? right? So I think that... Um, you know, the terminology is important.
1: Uh, Okay. Um, One technical thing. uh, uh, What is a hazard ratio?
0: A hazard ratio, the best way to think about it, and myself being a non-statistician, what's the overall amount of space between those two curves on a Kaplan-Meier plot? How much separation is there from the beginning of those curves on the left all the way through the amount of space that you can fill, you can color in between those two lines? The more space the better what we call the hazard ratio, the more difference there is between those two curves.
1: So it's a measure of the overall overall benefit. Okay. Um, I think we'll address this a little bit later in the session that you and I are doing, but it's it's important. As patient tumors are more studied, as people pay more attention to the stuff Felix was talking about, will the treatment become more like an N of one? So the study of the unique pattern of that patient tumor and, and how can trials handle n of one studies? It it could become exponentially impossible.
0: I I think it's a great question. I I think that ultimately when it comes to clinical trials, um, the n of one and in real-world experience really is important. Um, I think that extrapolating data from patient charts and understanding when they're treated with a targeted therapy, whether it be on a trial or off study, and learning from that patient is super important. I do think from a drug development standpoint, however, that you do need to pre-specify what's your patient population, and that could be selected based on a genetic feature. But you do need to sort of study that in a predefined way. You have a hypothesis of how well you think the drug is going to work. Do you meet that bar or not? So I think the n of one real-world experience is important, but it doesn't replace the need for the, the clinical trial testing.
1: Yeah, and I think as you'll see later in the day, um, what we're trying to do with the genomic uh, testing is to th- uh, thread the needle and develop buckets, different buckets of types of tumors based on the genetic profile. So we have not a million buckets, but 20 buckets. And, and we know that, that increasingly, as we learn, get more sophistication about the genetics, those groups get a little bit smaller. But the goal is to be able to develop drugs that can address everyone in that group. Um, Can you speak to the types of trials that we have with regards to sponsor? So the question here specifically, and I think it reflects the concept, the understanding that all drug trials come from industry. How are trials initiated? Do companies approach institutions? Do institutions approach companies? Are there other types of studies besides industry trials?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. The answer is definitely yes. There's a variation in the types of trials that we do at, at any really investigational site would do. The classic split is between what's called an industry-sponsored trial and an investigator-initiated trial. So in the former, in an industry-sponsored study, The company is ultimately responsible for the data. They will approach sites and ask them to participate in the study. We still independently need to collect that data without interference from the company, but ultimately the the company sponsor is responsible for the design and, and conduct of that study we as an academic site really put a priority in trying to develop a robust platform of investigator-initiated studies because we think that that academically that's important. We think it's important for patients. Those are studies where we come up with the idea and then we approach either a company or sometimes it's the National Cancer Institute if it's a cooperative group type of trial uh, to get the financial support for that trial. But nonetheless, that's a different type of design where we're coming up with the idea. Ultimately, we hold what's called the IND. We're responsible for the study conduct and data. And so any healthy program really has a mixture of those type, two types of studies. Both are definitely important in, in overall clinical trial development.
1: And I should also say that at any academic institution in UCSF is no different. There are very, very, very strict conflict of interest rules so that Rahul, if he's conducting a study with drug A, cannot hold stock in that company, cannot have an position in that company cannot have anything to do with that company and those rules are very rigidly adhered to which is appropriate you don't want your doc to be offering trials because it's in his or her best interest it has to be in your best interest and i don't think that's a that's a terrible question to ask your doc like hey you're participating who's sponsoring this trial what's in it for you
0: absolutely no i I get that question uh i get get that question pretty commonly in clinic when i'm talking with patients about trials and i it's not an offensive question i think it's an important one to ask of your doctor uh it's obviously an an issue that's been in the news a lot uh, especially recently and so it's very appropriate to ask your doctor and they should give you a transparent answer